Well, welcome again. Uh, my name is Jason, by the way. I'm one of the pastors with the crew here at Artisan Church. And uh, it's great to have you folks here. A lot of new folks, some folks who've just been coming the last few weeks and, and the uh, other faces that I don't go, grow tired of seeing as well. Glad that you guys are here. You are joining us and we're coming together uh, at the beginning of this new series. And Pastor Scott gave some of the details, but the series that's dealing with the areas of, of tension in our lives. Whether we're a person who follows Christ, someone seeking to figure that out, there are areas of life that it's so easy to go to the extremes. And so we're going to tackle the idea of how do we walk the line between those extremes. And uh, what's kind of special about this series is the music infusion that's happening each week. In fact, the music in some ways came first, and now we're seeing what themes and scriptures uh, come alongside that. Uh, but it's great, you know, Ben's crew... Magic Jesus bus. <laughs> Good stuff. Bringing these sounds from the civil rights movement. But I need to be honest that as a white guy born in the 70s, grew up in northern Maine where it was 98.6% white, and I think the rest of them were Penobscot Indians, <laughs> the civil rights movement is not something that resonates with me. And I'm not sure if it does with many here. And so there's a sense where we hear those songs that they're, they're wonderful, they're somewhat inspiring, but they're more just nostalgic. And they're even derived nostalgia for many of us. They're, you know, we feel like we're supposed to be nostalgic. Uh, you like that one, huh? <laughs> I'm going to write that down for tonight. Um, derived nostalgia. And, uh, and yet, are there other issues that those represent? Are there other areas of injustice, things that are wrong in the world that we can't merely be nostalgic about? And even if that movement is no longer some of ours, are there still issues that remain that we shouldn't ignore? And so I felt that struggle working uh, on this message this past week or two of what are the areas where God's calling me to do something about a wrong in the world, an injustice, a system, a way of life that, that really tears down what God would desire for us. And so maybe that's a question some of you have asked, or maybe it's even a new idea. But all of us have probably been on the receiving end of something not quite being right in the world. And many of us, though, realizing it are often on the giving side of, of injustice and things that are wrong just because we participate in a fallen world. And so how do we walk that line? It's often easy for us to choose the extremes. As the title says, to walk the line between silence, where we just stand idly by and let the world keep happening, and, or violence where we lash out in anger, whether it's with fists and weapons or or even just rhetoric. And yet Christ calls us to a different way. That as we walk in the way of Jesus, uh, he provides an example of how we might live. And if you want to start flipping to Colossians, and if uh, using those red Bibles there, page 956 will get you there. Uh, in your other Bibles, go ahead and use your index. We'll, we'll come to this in a moment. 
But we find in these pages of Scripture this small band of followers of Jesus who, much as ourselves, lived within a system that was often unjust, had all kinds of problems and, and shortcomings that, that really stood in opposition to God's desire for the world and his people, the people he created. And yet, the empire that they were a part of, the Roman Empire, was so powerful, vast, and far-reaching that it seemed a complete you know, fantasy that they could make any changes. Much as we sometimes feel as we you know, live in the shadow of, some might argue, an empire, that again, most of us, if we're honest, uh, really benefit from. I mean, it's an empire that's it's our empire, and uh, we kind of like it. This American dream that many of us feel like we're, we're buying into and are part of. But if we did want to change that, you know, how could we? How could one person or one church community or... And then we look to the folks in the civil rights movement and see how they banded together. We look through human history where God's people would stand up for things. And we look back to the beginning days of the church. We find there's some inspiration of a group of people starting out a few dozen, 120, 1,000, 4,000, but still pretty small in those early days, being oppressed by an empire, and yet some few generations later, about 250 years, that initial band of followers grew to uh, 6 million people, and in essence brought down the very empire that had crucified their leader and founder, that had oppressed them, thrown them to the lions, driven them from their cities, And on the eve of Constantine, uh, the emperor, declaring that Christianity, for good or ill, many would argue for ill, was now an officially recognized and sanctioned religion, this small band of followers had, over the generations, brought down an empire. And they did it without standing silently by. And even more oddly, they did it without violence. So how did they do it? You know, look into the civil rights movement even. Some great examples there of the whole spectrum. I know my, even my parents' generation, certainly my grandparents' generation, and the people in their circle, they were the folks that were silent. And then there were others that understandably so were incredibly angry at the injustice and would resort to violence. Though almost every time the results would be worse, it would drive people out of a city to the suburbs. There'd be race riots, there'd be deaths and mayhem and, and school systems and integration that had been happening, being broken apart. And yet there was a few, as some of the songs uh, told us, that found this other way. And I would argue that they were inspired by, by the vision that we find in these scriptures the vision of a kingdom of God that is not brought about by silence, is certainly not brought about by violence, uh, but is rather subversive. So let's see if we can find this line and maybe choose to walk it ourselves. And so we're going to look in the Colossians. And the context here is the Apostle Paul is writing to this tiny group of followers of Christ who live within an empire. And probably the best thing that's that exemplifies this empire was the money they had. 
So if you want to understand the kind of empire they lived at, you just look at one of the coins. And on one side of the coin was this beautiful depiction of the goddess Pax, P-A-X, the goddess of peace. And so every time you'd pay for something, you'd give an offering at the temple, you would exchange in commerce and all those things, you would be reminded that you were a beneficiary of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace was a vast network of roads and trade routes from North Africa, the Near East, the islands of Great Britain, and that the peace that you experienced was at the hands of Rome. But every coin has a flip side, right? So you'd flip that coin and look on the other side. And then if you were ever to question this peace that you lived under, you'd be reminded of how that peace was maintained. Because on the flip side of that coin were the weapons. A not too subtle hint that this is an empire that will have peace at any cost. And so within that peace, this band of followers needs to decide how to live. And if there is injustice, if there are wrongs to be righted, what could they hope possibly do? What could they hope to change? And so it's in that context of an empire that tells a story about who the people are, how they're to act, the way they're to live. It's in that context that the Apostle Paul writes to them. And he writes what I would argue are some of the most revolutionary words in Scripture. So see if you can pick them up. And don't feel bad if you don't. We'll try to explain it here in a moment. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. These are words of sedition that Paul is writing. He says of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace, packs, through the blood of his cross. So did you feel it? Did you you sense the, the revolutionary words there? Anyone move to go marching now, you know, against the, at the Colosseum, you know, down with throwing people to the lions, all that? No one caught it, did they? No, we hear that and we think, you know, that's pretty. Those are, those are lovely religious words. It's something you might set a little bit of music to and sing a song about, about it and, and then go on your way. Who cares? Why is that revolutionary? Um, why is Paul writing these words literally in chains in the custody of this Roman Empire? Surely something is going on here. Well, in part, our, uh, our modern ears no longer hear the references there. We don't live in the context that those people lived in. 
And so for them, as they're hearing it, they would recognize the references. They would recognize things like uh, a reference to the image of God, the firstborn, first place, equal to the beginning of all things, restorer of order, beginning of life and vitality, ender of war, setting all things right, head of the body, savior, God manifest. And they would know that every one of those words was reserved exclusively for Caesar. That was common language. He was Lord of Lords. He was the Savior. He was the one by which deity was manifest. And if you needed proof, just look at the coin. Look at the empire we've created. No one stands against us. And so these images were everywhere. And Paul has the audacity to say, there is a different image. But the images, we think we're inundated with images. The citizens and the subjects and the slaves of Rome were as well. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't walk a stadia. That's a Roman reference. Uh, You couldn't go anywhere without seeing an image, a logo, a reference. It was in the marketplace. It was in the, the gymnasium. It was on their money, the gladiator games, the jewelry, the goblets, the lamps, the furniture, the paintings, the statues, the architecture. The images of the emperor were literally everywhere. And Paul says, that's the wrong image. But again, how does that apply to us? Are there any images that tell us stories, perhaps tell us lies, that these same words might challenge? On your very person right now, how many logos, symbols, references are you carrying with you? And what story do they tell? What story do they tell about achievement and being at first place? What story do they tell about an economic system that made the sneakers that only cost $25 on sale? Only cost 12 cents to make. Only paid someone a penny to make them. The car you drove in on, was there there a little symbol, an image that says something about your status, your place in this world, whether you... uh, are for the environment or against it. I don't know anyone's against it, but... (laughs) Do any of you have maybe a little sticker on one of your car windows that proclaims which operating system (laughs) you swear allegiance to? We are inundated with images. And so it might be helpful to hear these words of Scripture in a fresh way, in a way that translates the ideas that we miss into language we might finally get. And there's this phenomenal book called Colossians Remixed, and a husband and wife team, uh, Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmott, used a device that was common in the rabbis' uh, teaching methods, especially when they were doing teaching with those who no longer had Hebrew as their first language, perhaps lived in a culture that was far removed from the stories of Scripture. And these rabbis would create these targums, T-A-R-G-U-M, that were a retelling of the story, not merely in a new language, 
but that would translate the idioms, the expressions, the references. And so these guys do an amazing job of creating a targum of Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And so here, if this retelling of this starts to hint at the revolutionary nature, the subversive nature of what life in Christ might mean for us. So I feel like I should be dressed as a beatnik now, but do my best here. In an image-saturated world, a world of ubiquitous corporate logos permeating your consciousness, a world of dehydrated and captive imaginations in which we are too numbed, satiated, and co-opted to be able to dream of a life otherwise, a world in which the empire of global economic affluence has achieved the monopoly of our imagination in this world. Christ is the image of the invisible God. In this world, driven by images with a vengeance, Christ is the image par excellence, the image above all other images, the image that is not a facade, the image that is not trying to sell you anything, the image that refuses to co-opt you. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the image of God, a flesh and blood here and now in time and history with joys and sorrows, image of who God is. The image of God, a flesh and blood here and now in time and history with joys and sorrows, image of who we are called to be, image bearers of this God. And he is the source of a liberated imagination, a subversion of the empire. Because it all starts with him, and it all ends with him. Everything, all things, whatever you can imagine, visible, invisible, mountains, atoms, outer space, urban space, cyberspace, whether it be the Pentagon, Disneyland, Microsoft, Apple, or AT&T, whether it be the institutionalized power structures of the state, the academy, or the market, all things have been created in and through him. He is their source, their purpose, their goal. And even in their rebellion, even in their idolatry, he is the sovereign one. Their power and authority is derived at best, parasitic at worst. And in the face of the empire, in the face of presumptuous claims to sovereignty, in the face of the imperial and idolatrous forces in our lives, Christ is before all things. He is sovereign in life, not the pimped dreams of the global market, not the idolatrous forces of nationalism, not the insatiable desires of a consumerist culture. Those are a bit more revolutionary. Because if we were to speak against those things, to live a life differently, well then, the whole thing might fall apart. The empire would crumble. And again, many of us, as beneficiaries of that, might find ourselves losing out on the things we enjoy, the comforts we have. But what does it mean to walk this line in the shadow of that kind of empire? A few of us might feel the angry impulse and at least with our rhetoric want to be on the more violent end of the spectrum. And while few of us would want to you know, take up arms, uh, the language of culture wars, take back that political office, those are languages of, of violence. And some of our friends and neighbors uh, who 
apparently aren't as nuanced as we are. I have a hard time telling the difference between the language of warfare used that way and and language of jihad and and other things, and, and they're just scared when folks talk about taking back the culture and putting their people in power. But I'd say for most of us, we tend to be on the other end of the extreme. We're the silent types, because that's what we've been taught, to be polite and quiet and not cause trouble. But what if we were to be subversive? What if we were to take these words of Scripture that, that speak of an image that we, in fact, bear, that should be lived out in a different way, and were to do things differently? What if we weren't to go along with the story that the empire tells us? And this empire, it only exists because people go along with it. In a few days, in the coming weeks perhaps, many of you will be getting a piece of paper in the mail or some zeros and ones uh, deposited in your account that will tell a story about this empire. Because you see, right now, the economic side of the empire is in trouble. And that can't be. (laughs) And so the the current Caesar, regardless of power, they're interchangeable, honestly, most days, is going to give us some bread and circuses and give pieces of paper that are to stimulate the economy. And then the storyline is going to be that for you to be a good citizen of this empire, you've got the flyers in the mail, right? You already know what, what your role as a citizen is. You're to go consume because that's the image that we're told, that we are units of consumption, that our value, in fact, our whole system is based on how well we consume. And in that kind of empire, everything becomes a commodity. Everything is something to be exchanged and bought and used, even people. Whether it's sex or friendships or business connections or the good feelings we get from being part of a church community, we can turn those into commodities. And so it's not a small thing for us to decide to do something subversive. because the empire might crumble. And uh, if you don't believe that's part of the story, a few of you may recall, actually a bunch of you were in junior high, and so not sure what your memory was. But you've heard of 9-11, right? That was one of those moments where the empire teetered for a moment. And in the aftermath of that, there was a brief time where, where neighbors took on a whole new meaning. We're doing life together, where things that were once ignored became very important. The only problem was that the machinery of the empire needed to be infused with some new life. And so, does some of you recall the story that we were told? Again, regardless of leader, could have been any party, any person, I think the story would have been the same. 
but that one of the ways we were going to show the terrorists they had not won was to go shopping. Do you guys remember that? Don't let the terrorist win. Go shopping. And I quote, so we can tell them that America is back in business. And so my worry for our church community, as we look at issues of injustice and things gone awry, that we would fall into a false sense that it's really not that bad out there. That there's those who've gone before us that have taken on the big issues like, you know, slavery and the civil rights movement and equality amongst genders. And, and really, we just can enjoy the fruits of that. When in fact, there's as much injustice now and brokenness as there ever was. And it's the church that's called to embody this new way of life. It's the church that's meant to be the subversive force. Ah, force isn't even the right word. The subversive people of grace in the world. And so what might that look like? Well, in Colossians 3, verse 11, I think Paul gets even more subversive. Because as he speaks of this renewal, of this kingdom of God that's breaking through, and that we are meant to be subversive agents of, he describes the reversal of, of all the storyline that the empire tells. And he says, in that renewal, chapter 3, verse 11, in that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Those are subversive words because the empire works by having an aristocracy and a slave class, by having citizens and subjects, by having trading partners and those who are subjugated. And that the more the people are divided, the easier they are to lead. And so what would that look like in our setting? Is this even true of us today? Do our political... uh, leaders, do they benefit from putting people at odds with each other, that there are Democrats and Republicans and Green Party and environmentalists and corporate pigs, and uh, I'm kind of a mix of all those most days, do they play us off of each other and, and do they benefit from there being differences? Do those who market to us, do they love it when, when a new niche is formed, when we get further and further divided into into marketing segments that will buy the iPod that's this size, this color, and that size, and there's the iPhone, and there's the tiny one that you clip on, but you can't just own the tiny one because people might think you're poor. That's the one for jogging. Make sure they see the iPhone also. You have both that you could, you know, or I love some of the people that ride bikes around our neighborhood. You can tell which ones want to be very clear that they could afford a car and they have a car, and you should know that. Because that's why the gear and the bike they're riding is worth $3,000. Just so you'll know that, yes, they also have a car. And they can afford a car. They're not forced. And then you can tell the folks that the bike is their only means of transportation. What would it look like if we as a church body were to live out this subversive way of life? What if we did it even in this neighborhood? Let me be super practical and local for a moment. 
I mean, we've got people here for, that live in the city, in the suburbs, college campuses. But if we were to say, as a starting point, 1235 Clinton Ave South was going to be the corner of the empire that we were going to subvert, would there be any need for that? Literally, within a one-block radius of here, you have every possible socioeconomic class, most ethnicities represented, issues of business and commerce, taxation, and all those things. And so if there's to be a renewal, what will it do for the people that are just across this line over here in Brighton, have one of the best school systems in the country? And some of uh, my friends who are, who are police officers, some that work in the Brighton area, they talk about doing border patrol. What if those folks became one with the subsidized towers that are blocked that way? What if the million-dollar homeowners in this part of the city were one in Christ with the folks that make just enough money to rent the home they live in, but not enough to buy it, even though the monthly payment would be lower? They just can't get the startup capital. What if as a church, we actually did some things different instead of just showing up? And I'm not, I'm quite encouraged by this crew. So these are not angry words. Um, but there's always the danger that we will become just another group of consumers, right? Things are actually going really well here at this church body. A little over two years old. Numbers are growing. We've got like 74 people here this morning. We're going to have another 50 or 60 tonight. That's crazy. I remember when it was 12 people in a room. What if we were to believe the story that the empire tells us that we measure what's success by market share? The budget's been good. We're bringing in way more than we, as a very small budget line, we're saying we barely needed. So what if we were to believe the story of empire that, that our net worth is what defines success? And so maybe there's some things that God might be calling us to do that are subversive. And I'll just throw out a few just to, to be meddlesome. There's some of you that are in your senior year, just graduating. You're going to have a choice to make about where you live. You can pursue the American dream. That's a great story. It's a story that the money tells us, where it says, in God we trust on one side. It doesn't mention which God that is. On some of the money, it shows the symbol of our freedom, that eagle. And clasped in his talons are those 13 arrows of war. <laughs> Reminding us of, of how we maintain the empire. Maybe you choose to live somewhere differently. to buy a house, to rent an apartment that would stand up against the empire. That even though you're pulling down 60000 a year at your software engineering job, you might live somewhere where you could live on 10000 and do crazy subversive stuff with the other 50. What if as a church we were to decide that the business is here? Because churches, they don't, we just do stuff with people. 
what if we were to be a blessing to the businesses on this street? There's a, there's a little cinema here that tells the story of empire that struggles because it's cheaper to convert farmland in the suburbs to a multiplex of 18 theaters than to be a neighborhood feature. And so these are folks that struggle literally to pay their, their upkeep. And so painting, fixing the lighting on the outside, it's not a high priority. Wouldn't it be crazy if a church were to come to them and say, could we paint your business? Do you suppose that would be subversive? What if we were to uh, get to know the folks in these subsidized towers and not in some condescending, useless way of here we are to help you, but could you help us live in this community better? Maybe that same movie theater we, we painted might be a great place to, to watch the movies together. Maybe this five acres that... God bless them, love them, part of our denomination. In fact, the folks who add this facility never did a subversive thing with it. We already have done subversive things here. We were, when, we were so subversive as to change the paint color of this building from battleship gray to yellow. <laughs> and you chuckle. This building has been here for 25 years. And in the act of painting it and having people literally outside this building, there were folks that came up to us and said, I've lived here 30 years. I did not know there was a church here. But when the paint dries, it's awfully easy to go back inside, isn't it? And what if 25 years from now, Someone said, yeah, there was like some club or group of people there. The cinema closed. They tore down the towers. The economy collapsed. Uh, people moved out. Uh, I think they went and built a better building, bigger building, out on some farmland in the suburbs. I think they're, they're like they're up to 1,000 or so now. Um, we need to be subversive. I'm starting to ramble. Are you gonna walk that line? I don't think violence is gonna be the issue, though that would be interesting. Though the angry rhetoric, the attitude might be so. I think silence is more our problem. And if there's still injustice in this world, if the echoes of the civil rights movement on through the, down the ages, back to the church in, in Colossae, speak of systems and human structures and spiritual forces that are to be stood against, will we do something subversive? And so, if you'll indulge me, I think there's a few different postures that we could take. And maybe as, as a body prayer, You'll join me in this, and not, nothing too weird. I don't think you'll be embarrassed. Try not. Um, but I think one of the postures we could take, if you want to do this, just sort of fold your hands in your lap. Just hold them there for a moment. 
To me, that is the posture of, of silence. It's the posture that says we are polite people. We do not cause trouble. We speak when spoken to. We do not speak out of turn. Uh, and we sit with our hands folded. That would be one posture. And there was those during the civil rights movement. I know my family were good people, nice people, that sat with their hands folded in their lap. Then there's the other gesture. This one's a little more fun to do. You know, clench that fist. I dare say there's not a person here that did that during the civil rights movement, but the anger and the violence, that could be a reaction where we're going to win the culture war. We're going to take back office. We're going to own our school system, our neighborhood, our... and maybe go further. But what's the gesture that Christ offers? Do not do this one just yet. But it's that gesture of the outstretched hand. It's the hand that's subversive. It's the hand that's able to give, and yet oddly enough, can receive as well. The people in the towers have something to give to the folks in Brighton in the million-dollar homes and the renters over here. We could receive from each other also. Jesus could receive from some kid with some lunch. It's a gesture that's ready and willing and able to embrace. But here's the thing. It's a vulnerable gesture. Oh, it's much safer to keep the hands folded. It's much more satisfying to clench the fist. But you put your hand out there, someone's going to put a nail through it. And so you've got to decide, will you be that subversive? And so I would not presume that one simple message would move people to, to make some commitment but I do trust in a Holy Spirit who may already be at work in people's lives. And I do trust in the power of Scripture to move hearts. And maybe there's some of us here that are ready and willing to live subversively, to walk that line. And if just as a gesture, as a body prayer, you want to put that hand out for a moment? I will pray for you. And if you keep it out there, you will notice that your arm will go tired. It'll start to shake a little bit. And you will want to put it down. Feel the burn. <laughs> Let's pray. God, I thank you for those here who are sensing a call to live more subversive lives, to tear down the barriers that the marketplace, the political system, the powers that stand behind many of those things tell us we should indeed need to do to live the good life, to be cast in the image of this empire and instead want to embrace the image of Christ and be the image bearers that you have made us to be and be subversive, to not stand silently by as pawns the hands of market forces and political expedients that are not willing to be mercenaries and lash out in violence to just exchange one group of ruthless leaders 
for our team. But in the gesture that Christ showed us, want to be subversive, to give and receive, to embrace, and even be willing to be wounded. Help us be subversive. Help this church community be subversive. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, the most subversive act in all of human history was done in the person of Christ. That's who Paul speaks of. He was the ultimate subversive agent. He was the word that became flesh to break the silence. He was the one that through an overwhelming act of surrender decisively defeated the violence of Satan, sin, and death and took upon himself all the injustice, the evil, the sin, the rebellion that we could throw at him, that the systems and powers of this world could throw at him, and he exhausted them. Let me read the close to this Targum before we go to communion. And so everything, all things, whatever you can imagine, visible and invisible, mountains and atoms, outer space, urban space, and cyberspace, every inch of creation, every dimension of our lives, all things are reconciled in him. And it all happens on a cross. It all happens at a state execution where the governor did not commute the sentence. It all happens at the hands of the empire that has captured our imagination. It all happens through blood, not through a power grab by a sovereign one. And it all happens in embraced pain for the sake of others. It all happens on a cross, arms outstretched in embrace, and this is the image of the invisible God. This is the body of Christ.